Alright, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, and before we go through this chapter, I just want to say that, you know, whenever I'm going through books like this, I often feel like I'm not doing it justice doing a chapter a week because there's just so much in these. But at the same time, you know, I, I'm sticking with this method of trying to get through a chapter because, you know, you can, I think, almost make a mistake too of going through too slow, making it where you lose context. And I just saw on Twitter, uh, there's this Calvinist pastor who just announced that he just finally finished preaching through the Gospel of John. It took him like, I think, nine years, he said. Nine years on the Gospel of John. And I guess it all started when he had some, he had some of them nasty new eye of beers come into his church and cause a split and stuff like that. And it's taken him nine years to fix it, apparently. But here's the thing. He went through it, nine years to go through the Gospel of John. You're still a Calvinist? I, I, I think, I think you were missing something. There, I really do. And I, and I hear people all the time talking about taking months to go through. I heard somebody today talking about months going through the book of Ephesians. And in that same time while he's talking about that, he talked about being dispensational. And I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, how can you go spend that much time studying the book of Ephesians and yet still be dispensational? That, that really that blows my mind. But here's why. Because when you just zero in on one or two verses... It's easy to isolate that text and take it out of context. And we call that, you know, eisegesis. And they all act like they're against that. But that's what happens when you only go two or three verses at a time. And I'm not here making a rule saying you can't do that. I think you can, but I think it's real easy to make some pretty big mistakes when you do that. And just like if you go through a whole chapter, it's real easy to ignore a lot of stuff too. So, you know, either way you spin it, every preacher's got to figure out how they can fit, do whatever they got to do to be honest with the Scriptures. And if you took nine years to go through the Gospel of John, you're still a Calvinist. I don't believe you're honest with the Scriptures. If you took months to get through the book of Ephesians and you're still a dispensationalist, I don't think you're honest with the Scriptures. So uh, I, I, I think it's very important we do that. And then here in chapter 4, we're going to see a passage of Scripture that is butchered by pretty much everyone across the board and if people would think about this letter as one letter, you know, and if they would look at the message as a whole, all of a sudden this passage becomes very clear. And so it's just kind of a reminder uh, for me of why I do it this way. And I don't believe it's how everyone has to do it, but it's just it's what I need to do to be honest with the Scriptures. So verse 1 of Ephesians 4 says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, let's not just isolate that verse and we talk about whatever I want. What is this vocation wherewith we are called? I believe if he's going to say something pretty profound like this, something very specific, there must be some context to it. And so what is this vocation or calling that we have, that we're supposed to walk worthy of? And I love how he says, walk worthy of this calling of yours. And so we're not going to go back and read the last three chapters again, but let me just kind of nail a few highlights. So first off, we see... In chapter 1, verse 3, we are a people with all spiritual blessings seated in heavenly places in Christ. 1, 4 says, we are holy and without blame before God in love. Verse 5 says, we are adopted children. Verse 6 says, we are accepted in the beloved. Verse 14 says, we are a purchased possession. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, we are quickened. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. 
In verse 19, it says we are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In verse 21, it says we are a new temple or a part of this new temple. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says we are fellow heirs and partakers of the promise of God. Now, what's interesting, and we've covered this as we went through this, every one of these things that Paul said that we are, you know who he gives credit to? Jesus. Jesus is what has made us all of these things, not our works. It's not any works of righteousness we've done. Folks, we have some pretty good standings with God. We have some pretty impressive titles as believers. I mean, to be called righteous, to be called saved, to be called children of God. These are all very wonderful things that, that we are called. We, in the book of Revelation, we're called priests and kings even. But at the same time, who gets all the glory for that? Jesus Christ gets all the glory of that because He made us those things. We didn't do it. We didn't achieve it on our own. So let's keep all this in mind because now, in the rest of this book, He's getting into some pretty practical teaching about how we are supposed to live. So as people who have been given all of these titles freely, and get not just titles, but positions, benefits, blessings, all these things that we've just been given because of Jesus Christ, you know what he's calling us to do? You know what? Act like you're those things. Not in the sense of putting on a show, but try to be worthy of it. Hey, we have eternal life. So you know what we should do? We should try to act or be worthy of eternal life. Not that we can. Not that that's possible. But just because we appreciate what we've been done, it's like, you know what? We should probably live like it. And that's basically what he's encouraging us to do. We see in... Chapter 3 and verse 21, right before he says all this, in the last verse, before we get into chapter 4, he says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So again, Jesus gets credit for all those things. We're never bragging when we're talking about being saved, children of God, all those things. It's never bragging. And so since we've been freely given all these things, we should try to be worthy. And then he says, and this is how we do it. In verse 2, while we've got all these wonderful titles and positions given to us, we should, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. If we understand that all glory goes to Christ, then this command should be very easy. And none of us should be walking around with our chest all puffed out like we're really something. As a child of God, I'm a child of God. Well, hey... I'm a child of God, but I don't have anything to brag about. All glory goes to Jesus Christ. Imagine, too, I, I thought about this way. You know, imagine being on a cruise that had like a VIP section and a poor people section. And imagine if you had your way paid for to go in the VIP section, and then you walked around looking down your nose at all the people in the poor section as if, you know, they're this lower class. Hey, you got your way paid for free. You know, you couldn't even afford the poor people. I can't even afford the poor people section on the cruise. And so, you know, imagine having something paid for you like that. And then you walk around like you're, you know, strutting around like you're better than everybody else looking down at all the peasants. And imagine a Christian who claims to understand salvation is by grace through faith. All these things have been freely given. And then you're going, you're looking down on everybody else. That's a pretty sorry attitude right there. So while we ought to be trying to walk worthy at the same time, we've got to keep a lowly attitude. We've got to keep a meek attitude. We need to be long-suffering to others who maybe aren't walking as worthy as we are. 
And you know what? There might be some in here. You're walking a little more worthy than somebody else. But guess what? You're still unworthy. So you know what? Stop looking down your nose at that person who's not quite as worthy as you are. Because either way, you got in on a free pass. Either way, you got in through the blood of Christ. So verse 3, so if we keep this lowly attitude, this meekness like we're supposed to, one of the other things we're supposed to do while being long-suffering, forbearing one another, because people have issues, we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, of peace. And as a Christian who's not worthy of anything that Christ has made us, we shouldn't be contentious in causing problems amongst believers in church. We should, you, know what, you know what our attitude ought to be when you're in a church? When you're a part of a church, any church, not just Liberty Baptist Church, you're a part of any church, any congregation of believers, you should have the attitude that I'm just lucky to be here. That, that ought to be your attitude. You know, it's amazing that we are worthy or that we are not worthy, but that we are allowed to sit in a congregation of people in the presence of God. And so our attitude ought, ought to just be, you know what? I'm blessed to be allowed to be a part of this. I'm blessed to be recognized as a believer and as a member of a church. And we got too many people today, they go into churches with this attitude, this church is really lucky to have me. I mean, they'll people, they'll go walking into these churches strutting around, like, you better court me, Pastor. You better show me how you know, much you want us here. You know, we got money, we tithe. I got talented kids. I got a talented family. They're going to help with this and we'll help with that. But, you know, you, know, you better do what I like. Otherwise, I'm going to go to the church across town. That's the attitude a lot of people have. You know what? We don't need people like that. Our attitude ought to be, when we're in the house of God, I'm just thankful to be able to be here. I'm thankful that God allows me to be in here. I'm thankful this congregation of believers is willing to put up with me. And you know what? None of us think anybody has to put up with us, but the truth is, somebody's putting up with you. Okay? Somebody in this church probably doesn't like you that much. And you know what? Get over it. There's people you don't like that much either. And, we, and you know what? You don't need to express those things. We don't need to talk about those things. We all just put up with each other. Why? Because we understand it took grace to get me here. It's going to take grace to lead me home. And I'm going to have grace with other people because I want to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so just like in the previous chapters, we see how God wanted all the people to be one, we need to have the same attitude in church. We don't need schisms. We don't need divisions in church. When we have those things, it's because we are carnal. We often tell ourselves, I'm causing all this division because I'm just taking a strong stand on whatever. No, you're probably just being contentious. You're probably just being carnal. You're probably just getting lifted up. And you know what? Uh, yes, everybody in this church is wrong on something, including the pastor. Everybody is. But you know what? In verse 7 says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now here's the question none of us can answer. How much grace did God have to give you? I don't know. You know? It, but it was probably a lot. And so considering that God had to give us a lot of grace, we should be willing to give a lot of grace to other people. 
So, you know, just we should have a gracious attitude towards each other. We should be willing to put up with some stuff and deal with things that we don't like because we don't want division in the church. God is not about division through this whole book. We've been seeing how it's God's will for us to all be one. We are all going to be one one of these days. And let me tell you something. If you're right, if you're right on whatever it is that you're different than everybody else on, one of these days, we'll all be just like you in that one area. Because you've got areas where you're wrong too. So you know what? Just get with the program. Be supportive. And you know, be united. It's very important. And have grace for people. People are having grace for you. And so... It's very important now that we understand exactly what this next passage is saying. Because it's one people like to run with to teach all kinds of weird doctrine. And right here's an example, too, of why I like to go through the whole chapter. Because uh, when we do, when we look at this passage as a whole, all of a sudden, what this is actually talking about becomes very clear. So, verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this notice that phrase, he led captivity captive. This is a passage that people like to run with. But before we look at what people say about this passage, uh, that, that has a prophetic quote from the Old Testament in it, and people will take this and teach weird doctrines, first let's look at what Paul is saying. And then... Let's look at what he is not saying. Because once you understand what he's saying, and then you realize, well, people are using this to try to prop up this doctrine. That's really stupid. So let's, let's look at what Paul is actually saying. So remember so far, in this chapter, he's told us to walk worthy of our vocation. He tells us to be united. He's talking to a church. He's saying all of this to people as a church. Okay, I'm speaking to you. Pretend I'm Paul now and you're the Ephesians. And I'm telling all of you as individuals... Walk worthy of your vocation, you've been called. And you know what? And as individuals, strive for unity amongst each other. As a church, let's maintain that unity. We are all one in Christ. We don't have, we're not Jews and Gentiles. God's made them both one. We are all one in Christ. Let's strive for unity as a church. Let's be worthy of this vocation. We've been called as one people. So why would we have all these different groups of people? That's sending the wrong message. That is not what God intended. That is not what God planned. So Paul, has, he has expressed all of this so far. He mentions there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc. And all these things that we are is because of Christ. And God had to give us grace. And we need to give grace to others. It's God's goal for us to be united. And we need to understand that when Jesus ascended to heaven, that He gave gifts to the church. Okay? When Jesus ascended to heaven, when Jesus left this earth and He ascended to heaven, He gave some gifts to the, to the church to help the people in the church fulfill their calling or their vocation. 
Okay, now here's what I want to do to help us understand this passage a little better. We're going to read this passage again, but we're going to leave out two verses that are in parentheses, a parenthetical statement that is contained in here that everyone wants to focus on and then get distracted. Talking about a completely unrelated doctrine. But when we, when we leave that out, it becomes very clear what this whole passage is about. So let's go look at verse 8 again. Um, it says... Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 11. And he, so what were those gifts? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So those are the gifts. When he ascended up on high and he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men. What were those gifts? Apostles, pastors, teachers, all those things. Why did he give all those things? For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We all need these kind of people in our lives to help us to walk worthy of that vocation. Folks, how are we going to be able to walk worthy of what we have been called to do if we don't have the Word of God, if we don't have the Scriptures? And you know what? We have the apostles that wrote the New Testament that taught us these things, and these things are a help to us. But you know what? We don't have the apostles in the flesh. We've had preachers that have preached these things to us. We've had pastors. We've had teachers. We've had evangelists, people who spread the gospel to all these different places. And as a result of their preaching, we heard the Word of God. And not only did we get saved, but we also learned how to live through these people. We've learned how to walk worthy of that vocation. That's what he's explaining here in this passage. That's what he's saying. So when he, when he led captivity captive, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men. That's what this is about, showing we're still sticking with the same subject. We're still talking about being united. We're talking about walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. So here's the question. Why did it bring up this him leading captivity captive? Why did it bring that up? Because people want to make it all about what happened during the three days and three nights that Jesus was in the heart of the earth while they try to explain away the fact that he was dead for three days. I'll say something more about that in a little bit. Why did it go to this passage? Verse uh, Psalm 68, it's quoting Old Testament. And in Psalm 68, verse 18, it says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. The reason that that passage is in there and it's worded that way, it's because the gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the church was a fulfillment of a specific prophecy. So that's why he goes into this. Paul is not all of a sudden describing what went on for three days and three nights while Jesus was in the heart of the earth. What he's doing is he's going back to a prophecy that prophesied of exactly what Jesus was going to do someday. That He was going to ascend on high and that He was going to give gifts unto men. And then He goes on and He explains what those gifts were that He gave. And not only was He going to give gifts to men, but he, this prophecy that was a, a, a psalm that they had that was to Israel, we see that He was going to give it to the rebellious also. Referring to Gentiles, referring to those on the outside of Israel, which is what Paul's been talking about throughout this letter too. That these things that were prophesied, they were hidden in the Old Testament, this gospel or this dispensation of the grace of God, that the gospel is going to go to the heathen too. So do you understand? It makes sense why Paul would bring up this passage because not only does it explain 
was it, or was this prophetic about the gifts that were given to the church to help us walk worthy of vocation? But this is also a prophecy showing how those on the outside of Israel were also going to be included, which he's also been explaining in this letter. So that's why he throw, he threw this passage in here. It, it, because what he was about to explain was a fulfillment of a very specific prophecy. And nobody wants to talk about that, especially in the dispensational world. They don't want to go back to Psalm 68. They don't want to explain that. They don't want to expound on that. It's very important that they do that. Instead, what they want to do is they want to go on and tell you that you know, Jesus went down to hell, good hell, and he took the Old Testament saints out of paradise, which is not called paradise, it's called hell, and he took them up to heaven. Now, how you will pull that from this passage, understanding the context, do you, do you see how there is nothing in there to indicate that's what it's talking about? Absolutely nothing. That's not what's going on. We see that, because what does captivity captive mean? Well, captivity would be a word that you could use for things that hold people captive, like prison bars or chains. You know, those things are used in the Old Testament to explain our spiritual condition. We, you could even say they, were, they would be things or people, they could be people like prison guards or you know, people like the warden or something like that. You know, things that hold you in, that keep you captive. And the things that held people captive, okay, the things that held us captive, Jesus conquered them. Jesus captured them. So Jesus took the captivity captive. Those things that were against us, okay? So, folks, this isn't talking about Old Testament saints in, in good hell. This is talking about us. There were things that were against us that kept us captive, that kept us from being a part of the commonwealth of Israel, that kept us from the things of God, that kept us from the covenants of promise, and Jesus conquered those things. He took them out of the way. I think Paul explains it even better and more clearly in Colossians chapter 2. Turn over there. I believe Paul's talking about the exact same thing here. It's just worded a little more simply because it's a little more confusing in Ephesians because he's quoting an Old Testament passage where some of these things were hidden. But here in Colossians, he's just stating these facts as they are. And look what he says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. He says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon and of the Sabbath day. Those are those things of the Old Testament, those feasts, those things that excluded Gentiles. And he's now saying, and, and the, the Jews would look at people and think, you know what, you're cut off, you're out because you don't have those things. No, Jesus took those things out of the way. Those were the things that held us captive. But Jesus took those things captive. Now, we cannot be condemned by those things anymore. We're no longer under condemnation because Jesus Christ took that captivity captive. And, he, and all those things of the Old Testament, 
Paul goes on to say in verse 17, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the body is of Christ. So there's no doubt that the, thing, the captivity that was taken captive, it was not people. It was not Old Testament saints. That is a reference to Jesus conquering the things that was keeping us out of the kingdom. Jesus defeated those things. He took care of those things. He nailed those things to his cross. And how did Jesus nail something to his cross when he's, he's the one nailed to the cross? Because understand, it's speaking figuratively there, but when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, that was him paying for all of our transgressions. So all of those things that some Jew could come along and condemn us for, we can say our condemnation has already been put on Jesus Christ. And those things have been taken out of the way because Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood. He died and was dead for three days. And you know what death does? Death holds us captive too, doesn't it? When you die and you go to hell, you're stuck there. But somebody defeated death. And that was Jesus Christ. And so uh, there's no doubt what leading captivity captive is. This is not up for debate. This is just this is very clear from the Scriptures. And to go and to just take this passage and act like it was Jesus going and leading people out of good hell is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense. And then, too, what you'll have, people who deny that Jesus went to hell and that Jesus, people who deny the death of Christ, those, those same people, what they end up doing is when they try to excuse whatever, you know, what happened when Jesus was in hell, they'll try to say, well, he led captivity captive. Oh, so he did it in hell? I actually believe he did it on the cross. Now, you know what I can, now what we can start doing, we can start thumping our chest and start saying, it was on the cross, it was on the cross, it's all about the cross. And it is all about the cross. Jesus took those things out of the way on the cross. He did those things on the cross. Okay, but understand too, he died on the cross. He, he, he died and was dead just like every other sinner. And this leading captivity captive, okay, it was noticed in Ephesians it said he did this when he ascended on high. Because you hear people too that, you know, they, they go, the, the, the straw man arguments people come up with to deny the death of Christ just irritates me so greatly. You know, because, you know, we'll emphasize how everything about Christ is important being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, all those things. People say, well, you know what? If he's born of a virgin and he doesn't die on a cross, no heaven for us. You know, okay. But you know what? If he dies on a cross and he doesn't rise from the dead, no heaven for us. You got all the prophecies matter. And refer to my message I preached about a year ago, all prophecies matter. These are dumb arguments, ladies and gentlemen, just to explain away an unpopular doctrine. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And, and people will use this text to do this kind of thing. But folks, why did he make this parenthetical statement mentioning him going to the lower parts of the earth. Because let's go back and look at that again. In verse 9, and notice the parentheses here. It says, Now that he ascended, for um, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And so that's the part everybody wants to zero in on. That's the part that the pastor who's going to take 14 months to preach through the book of Ephesians, he's going to spend two months on those two verses and then preach 
all kinds of weird stuff from the Gospel of Nicodemus, you know, and, and not the Bible. And he'll, he'll tell you about what Jesus was doing for three days and three nights when he was in hell. But, but why, why did he bring this up? I'll tell you why. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. Here's what we have to understand okay, about the sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice for sin, we all know this, and people are strawmanning us if they ever try to accuse us of believing anything other than this. The sacrifice of sin, it had to be done by a man, and it had to be done in his body. Okay? And listen, folks, I don't believe this weird teaching I've heard recently that like Jesus just possessed a body. Okay? I, I don't believe that. I believe that it was Jesus. He became a man. He took on him the seed of Abraham. I believe it was Jesus from the time of conception in that womb. People are like, well, the Bible says a body that I was prepared. Therefore, that was just God preparing a body inside there that Jesus could possess. No, it was Jesus in there the whole time. It was the Son of God in there the whole time. I mean, just weird stuff. I, I don't know. I, I, that's got to have some kind of fancy heresy name. You know, teaching that Jesus just like possessed a body, kind of like Satan possessed Judas. I'm sure there's some kind of fancy theological term for that, and I need to learn what it is. And I hope it sounds really bad. Because um, I, I, I hear people teach that kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. But it did have to be done by a man. It had to be done in his body. It says in 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Flesh and blood is what is sinful. And blood, okay, flesh and blood had to pay the price for sin, and it had to be flesh and blood that had no sin. And so that's why it has to be Jesus. Flesh and blood also had to rise from the dead because death is one of the things that holds the rest of us captive. We can't defeat death, ladies and gentlemen, not, not without Christ. Without Christ, we can't defeat death. Nobody else has ever been able to defeat death on their own. Jesus Christ was dead. And people say, how are you going to kill God? Well, you're not going to do it unless he lays his life down. But if he lays his life down and he takes the sin of the world upon himself and he bleeds and bleeds out, then yes, you can kill him that way. If he takes on him the seed of Abraham, if he makes himself a little lower than the angels, if he has a real human body like the rest of us except without sin, and he takes our sin upon him, laying his life down, if he doesn't call the legions of angels to come take him off the cross, if he willingly allows it, then yes, you can kill God. But he said in Revelation chapter 1, that behold, he liveth and is alive forevermore. He did that once for all. The sacrifice for sin was a one-time thing. It only had to be done one time. And this is another thing too. People act like if you teach that he suffered in hell, that he, you teach he suffered again. That doesn't make any sense. It's all, it was, it's a package deal, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus suffered a lot while he was on earth. He suffered in the garden. His soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. I mean, he, yes, he suffered on the cross and he suffered 
in death, and it's not him suffering again. Those were not like, well, we got one suffering here, got another. No, it was all a part of it. Every bit of it mattered. Again, preaching that a year ago, I don't want to rehash all that, but said it was in fact a bodily sacrifice. It was on the cross. Jesus carried our sins. He paid for our sins. All of that's 100% true, but we must never forget that the judgment that Jesus received on the cross for our sins ultimately cost him the ultimate price, his life. Folks, it, it, it killed him. He gave up the ghost. He said to God, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His life left his body, and when Jesus himself while his body went into a tomb, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. After he carried our sins on that cross for as long as was necessary to fulfill what God wanted for sins, Jesus held on as long as he had to hold on to pay for sins, but him doing that, it cost him his life and he died. And that's bad. Okay? It wasn't paradise where he went. He went to the place of the dead. He went to hell. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. And no amount of redefining of death and hell will change this. And the burden of proof is on other people to prove that his death was any different than the death of anyone else for those three days. And, and probably the worst excuse I've heard is they'll talk about how well, when Jesus was in the fiery furnace, you know, it didn't burn him. Okay, well, here's, here's the problem with that. First off, that was before he took on him the seed of Abraham. Second of all, that, you know, what takes place in hell isn't in a physical body. Okay? It's something that it takes place in the soul. Now, I, I can't pretend to understand how all of that works. But again, you're just going to go to that miracle because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't burn either. So, I mean, you know, now none of us are going to burn. I mean, you know, there's these are these weird reasoning people are coming up with. You have to prove to me that his death was any different than the death of any other sinner. I believe he died the death of a sinner. Not because of his sins, but because of our sins. But... Uh, it's a it's a really weird thing that people get freaked out about, and I don't really understand why. I actually I think I do understand why is because it makes you very unpopular in certain clubs. End of story. You know, and if you want to be a part of certain clubs, you're not allowed to teach that. Well, that's why people need to go back to being independent fundamental Baptist and just preach the Bible. And folks, you can't you can't preach it any other way, not without going into weird dispensational, you know, retardation. Uh, that that's the truth and so considering all that jesus has done for us considering that that one who you know defeated everything on the cross took out those handwriting of ordinances that was against us that one who has descended to the lower parts of the earth and then ascended out of there conquering death the one who did all those things for us on our behalf that one who ascended to heaven and has given gifts to us. He's given us apostles and we have their writings right here. He's given us pastors and teachers and evangelists and all these things. God has given us all these things for our perfection, for our completion. Because, so, 
So since God has given us all that, do you not think he expects some things from us? You know, it's not, it's okay for us to have some expectations from saved people. Now, some people today want to call that legalism. I, I don't know what to tell those people, but we don't, we have expectations. And so let's look at some of these things quickly. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lighten way to deceive. You know, we ought to be mature. We shouldn't be running back and forth on doctrines. Stop going and teaching new weird things depending on what club you just joined. Okay? Just be consistent. Be, be who you are. I expect people to not be children and just running back and forth from one thing to another. You know, what, you know what a lot of people are like doctrinally? I was watching a documentary the other day about a murderer from the area where, where I grew up. And when you watch this documentary... You know, and they do, on, do, on documentaries, they have an agenda, okay? All right, even Paul Wittenberger's documentaries, they have an agenda, right? Uh, we, we don't hide that. But, and, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to get you on their side, okay? Now, what some of them try to do, what this particular documentary did, they're just trying to mess with you the whole time. You're watching it, and then like when you first watch, you're like, man, he did, you're, first you think, well, he did it. Yeah, he definitely killed those people. And then you start watching a little more, and you're like, oh, man, I think the guy's innocent. And, you know, and, you, and, then, and they do. They get you thinking the guy is innocent when you're watching documentary. And then all of a sudden at the very end, it shows you this other stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's definitely guilty. <laughs> all of a sudden, on this documentary that looks like it's very much for this murderer, it gets to the end. And then they show all these things with the people they were interviewing him or that they were interviewing that thought he was innocent and showing these people saying crazy nut job conspiracy stuff. And it's like, these people are psychos. Why didn't you show us that footage, you know, before the part where they were telling us he was innocent? We didn't know not to pay attention to them. But that's how they keep you, folks. You know, that's how they keep you interested. And a lot of people are like that doctrinally. They're just constantly running back and forth. Oh, man, I heard the sermon on this. I believe that now. Oh, I heard this other guy preach. Now I believe that. They're just constantly changing. You know what? God expects more from you on that. It shouldn't be that way. Speaking the truth in love. Uh, may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. God has a plan for the body that we are part of, and we should try to fulfill that. We should see these things. This is what God wants from us. This is what I'm going to shoot for. Verse 17, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. We should not be like the world. God expects us to be different. What our world is motivated by is lasciviousness. The lust of the flesh. That is what they live for. That should not be us. We shouldn't get caught up in every little thing that the world gets caught up in. They're caught up in wickedness. Verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So we used to be that way and we still have this old man. So we naturally in our flesh are going to gravitate towards those things. 
But God expects us to put on the new man. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, you know what? That's why we have church. That's why he gave apostles and pastors and evangelists and teachers so we can help each other. So we can teach you. And, and so you can hear that preaching to motivate you to put on that new man and to not, not walk in the flesh. And so now, in the rest of this, he's just about to give some very practical instructions for believers. And this is expected of any believer. All these things, we could preach sermons on these things, but I'm just going to read through them real quick. Okay? So, wherefore, so consider, wherefore, considering all these things that God has done, considering the fact that He expects us to be different from this world, let me just give you some rules, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just give you some instruction. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Are we legalistic if we expect y'all to not be stinking liars? Oh, I didn't lie to anybody in the church. It was just my neighbor. No, don't lie to your neighbor either. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Be ye angry and sin not. That's a tough one right there. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Don't allow the devil to work in your life. Don't let him use... Folks, the devil knows how to use anger against us. Well, I believe in being angry and sin not. I got a righteous indignation. You can have that, but... Most of the time, it's just our own anger. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I, th- I think most of the time, you know, what we call righteous indignation is just our own anger. And, and it's a real thing. You can have it. And it's, and it's, but, you know, here's how we know if somebody has righteous indignation or it's just their own anger. Are they sinning? And if you're sinning, okay, you're all, even if I'm angry about something I should be angry about, okay, even if I'm just angry about homos, Okay? I should be angry about that, but that doesn't give me an excuse to go beating people up. It doesn't give me an excuse to just start you know, cursing and using all kinds of foul language. That's a righteous indignation. I'm disgusted by these people. They make me angry. Okay, great, you're angry, but you don't get to sin. It doesn't, doesn't matter. So if somebody truly has a real righteous indignation, you know what? As long as they're not sinning, then they're fine. So, let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that ye may have to give to him that needeth. Not only does God not want us stealing anymore, He wants you to be giving rather than stealing. He doesn't want you to just quit stealing. He wants you to be givers to people who have need. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Here you need to throw out those dirty jokes. Oh, those things get a lot of laughs. Those things make me popular at work. you got to put on the new man. You don't get to do that anymore. No more dirty jokes. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You can still sin, even if you're saved, but you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. He's in charge. He's the boss. Don't make the boss mad. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ, God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Folks, right there, that gives us permission to forgive pretty much anything. Pretty much anything that has been done to you, you have permission by God to forgive because we have been commanded to forgive as Christ forgave and you will never 
You will never outdo Jesus Christ when it comes to forgiveness. This is not going to happen. It will, it will ne- you will never outdo him no matter what. So you pretty much got permission to forgive anything. And notice how he says too, let all bitterness and wrath and anger. You know, what, you know, what's the difference on those things? And, you know, and he, he already told us, be angry and sin not. It looks like this anger thing is something that gets a lot of people in trouble. He's needing to mention it a lot. And I think it's because it's one of the things that gets us to sin. Just about as much as anything. And so we've got to make sure we follow these things. God expects it of us. You know, and even if you're not doing these things, you know what? You still have a righteous standing with God, but shame on you. To be given a righteous standing, to be given all these wonderful things in Christ, and then to go on your way and to refuse to put off the old man and to refuse to put on the new man that you are totally capable of doing, especially when you are in a church and you've been given the gifts that God has given to you as a believer, and to just not do these things, shame on you. We have no excuse to not be good Christians. And so all these things, too, that he mentions, if we'll do them, it will help us remain united and to fulfill God's will. These things are our vocation. These are our calling. We need to live up to them. We need to be a good representative of who we are in Christ. And it's important that we know another specific reason Paul was addressing this and how division may have looked in their day. Because they could, one thing that was very likely that was probably going on back then is they might have been making a distinction in that church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because of the fact that we, there probably were Jews and Gentiles in that church, and they were. You know, you have your Jewish believers and your Gentile believers. You know, Brother Marcus told me about how Bill Grady at college, there was some girl there that was a, a saved Jew, and he was always like encouraging people to give and be a blessing to her because it was like they were going to get extra special blessings. She was, it's like, are we really, are we really in the New Testament age when we have the book of Ephesians going to give somebody in this church a special standing because they're a Jew? Now listen, if somebody ever gets saved and comes to this, ch- this church and they believe the right gospel and they mention the, the fact that they're a Jew, okay, um, I'm probably not going to be rude to them. But I will definitely work very hard in teaching them real quick, who cares? And, and, if, you have, and if you have to keep bringing that up, all right, then you know we, we've got a problem. Because we don't put distinctions. We don't give any special recognition to you know, the Mexican members or the Indian members and things like that. We don't, we don't do that. We don't have special you know, standing like that. And it's like, oh man, you're, you know, you're, you're a Filipino believer. Whoo, that's awesome. And people do, and Baptists, they get more excited about Jews when they get saved than other people. It's like, this is weird. That, that is, that is messed up stuff. That is beyond carnal. It's just, it's ignorant on, on such a high level. And so, you know, be nice to new people, but our attitude should be, you know, who cares? We should be just as excited when a white person gets saved. Uh, Jews are white people. Right? <laughs> but whatever. It, it, it shouldn't matter. It, it literally shouldn't matter. A soul is a soul. And they got saved the same way. And you know what? The only people I get more excited about when they get saved are just personal loved ones. Family, friends. It's, you know, if, if you want to have a special place in your heart for people like that, 
it's okay to do that. Because people say, well, the Apostle Paul, you know, he had a special place in his heart for Israel. Well, yeah, his kinsmen according to the flesh. We're all like that. But you are so dispensational in your thinking, you care more about the Jews than you do your kinsmen in the flesh. That's really weird. I think I am like Paul because I care about my kinsmen in the flesh. In fact, I care more about my own nation than I do other nations. You know, I'd rather America have a revival than Israel. I'd rather, I'd rather America have a revival than any other country. You know why? Because it's my country. And the Apostle Paul, he knew it wasn't going to happen, but he wanted, a, he wanted a revival for Israel. But he, he knew it wasn't going to happen. But that's not an excuse for us to, again, make distinctions. That is so ignorant. And we ought to know better because of the book of Ephesians, amongst many other books. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that this message was helped everyone. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us and our position that we have in you. And I pray to help every one of us, Lord, to strive to be worthy. Uh, Lord, help us to understand uh, and never forget uh, what you've done for us. Help us uh, remember that we represent you and help us not to be like uh, this world, just going after lasciviousness and the lust of the flesh, but we'll uh, understand uh, that we have a higher calling and a vocation, and I pray we'll live up to it. In your name we pray. Amen.